0: Saturday. It's June 10th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, back in London at last.
1: And I'm Michael Haney in New York City, as always, steady on the beat. Well, welcome home, Ashley.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I will say, after two weeks in France, I think my French has improved. It'll be relieved to know that I'm no longer confusing the words for traffic with the words for air conditioning. That made for some interesting conversations.
1: Well, as long as you look right before you cross, that's all I care about.
0: No kidding. Well, it's summer, at least in New York. Is it summer there?
1: It's summer. Summer? Yes, the last few days have had our Blade Runner-like orange sky, thanks to crazy smoke from wildfires up in Canada. But it's summer here.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Can we just talk about how weird that is, Michael? I mean, that's alarming.
1: Yeah, you want to talk about how weird it is or how weird it is to live in it? It's been crazy. Yes, last night was truly dystopian and a tinge of apocalyptic. But thankfully this morning we woke up and it was a little more clear But yeah, it's been strange.
0: Can you smell it in the air? Is it like a campfire situation?
1: Yes, you can smell it in the air. You can taste it in your mouth. It's just par for the course. We've had plague. Now we have fire. It's whatever you want. The next few years are just going to keep throwing it at us. So we're just going to roll with it.
0: I have four words for you, my friend. Jet blue mint class, direct to Gatwick. (laughs) Get thee to the airport.
1: Get thee to the airport. Well, first, let's get thee to our show today because we've got a great one. First of all, we all know the 70s were the me decade and the 80s were the greatest good decade. But what is this strange decade? Speaking of strangeness, what is this strange decade of the 20s we're living in now? Bruce Handy is going to join us to tell us why we at Airmail are calling it The Raging Twenties, and then John Glatt shares the jaw-dropping bizarre story of Corey Richens. After her husband died from poisoning, she wrote a book to help her three young children learn how to grieve, but you will not believe what happened next. And finally, speaking of wild, Legs McNeil will join us with the inside story of two very strange bedfellows, specifically how Kenneth Anger, the writer who influenced everyone from Led Zeppelin to Martin Scorsese, became the unlikely friend of Alfred Kinsey, the father of the sexual revolution. So, crazy show? crazy good show. Ashley, where would you like to begin today?
0: My dear, let's start with good old-fashioned rage. We've got Bruce Handy here, who's the least angry guy in the universe Has somehow managed to get at the heart of the American condition right now. Not only is Bruce an incredible writer and journalist and thinker, but he is also Michael Haney's primary competition in terms of being the tallest person at any cocktail party. Welcome, Bruce Handy. <laughs>
2: Thank you. So glad to be here, as always.
0: Well, Bruce, in your View From Here column this week, you coined a term, what you call the raging 20s, categorizing the period of time that we're living in. And you liken the United States to being a patient that is suffering from a fever or an infection that is anger. What inspired you to write this?
2: Well, honestly, I wish I could claim Entire credit for it, but the coinage is actually Braden Carter's. But yeah, he sort of suggested to be totally honest and upfront. He suggested the idea to me, but I immediately lashed onto it because I think anybody who's paying any attention to the last few years in our country realizes that we are just, we are awash in anger. And I thought that obviously the raging 20s have a nice play on the roaring 20s, but I think it's so apt for this time. It took a while for the essay to gestate and I was just sort of sort of collecting material over the last couple months, maybe starting at the end of March, something like that. I think when I first started working on this, but there's just so much, stuff. like every day there's just crazy incidents. At one point I went online and Googled road rage, clicked on news. There was just, there was like 20 incidents. Somebody shot in Georgia, somebody with a kid in the backseat of their car shot somebody else in Texas, on and on and on. And not just in places like Texas or Georgia where we might, we think maybe kind culture is out of control, but all over the country. New York, California, Massachusetts, there was some road rage incident, I think, on the Massachusetts turnpike I read about. So, yeah, I mean, it's just constant, crazy anecdotes. There was this, I mentioned it in the piece, there was this a month or two ago where somebody was going around in Berkeley, California, and just car, what they call car dooring. Bicyclists. It was just basically just driving by bicyclists and somebody opening the car door and knocking them off their bicycles. I'm not sure if they even caught the person. There was a funny incident where I hope I don't get this wrong. The president of a sort of artificial meat company, I want to say which one because I might get it wrong, but apparently got in a fight with somebody and bit the nose of the guy he was having a fight with. They were at a football game. I'm not sure quite what they were fighting about, but I mean, it's, it's silly. I mean, one, the CEO of a company is biting another guy on the nose, and two, it's also like the CEO of a fake meat company. So it's not only a great example of rage, it's a great example of somebody going off-brand. But yeah, there's so many examples that obviously our politics is, is almost nothing but rage and anger these days.
1: You've identified some of the sort of the symptoms that we've got, but how did we get here?
2: And sadly, I think obviously polarization, which has gone on in this country over the last, I mean, it's really been an increasing problem since I think at least the nineties, maybe even further. And obviously media, I think facilitates that certainly going back to the rise of cable news in the nineties. And then obviously just sort of exploding with social media. I always think about, I forget what year it was, but when time magazine did the person of the year as you, it was just kind of the beginning of social media. I'm not even sure. Maybe it was just like Facebook and YouTube. I'm not even sure. Twitter existed then. But to me, that just seems like such a sad moment in a way, because I think it was intended as kind of this positive, you, you're creating all this stuff. But really, I think the problem was you. I think we've just kind of liberated and encouraged the human id and all our anger. It's funny, I was emailing with some friends the other day about sort of a non-related issue, but it sort of devolved into a discussion of this. And one of my friends said, I just think, I'm not sure people can feel empowered by doing anything constructive anymore. I think it feels like culture, the way culture is constructed now, you get empowered by lashing out. I mean, certainly that seems to so obviously gets clicks online.
1: Yeah, as you say, if you look at even just our vocabulary now, it's we rage tweet, we doom scroll. Right. We hate watch, as you write in the story today, this week, where it's even if we're aware as what we're talking about, it's a lot of vitriol in every action, right? As I think you point out there's that phrase at Fox News, right? Enragement equals engagement, right?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure who coined that, but I think it's, yeah, it's totally true of the Fox model. And honestly, in fairness, I think it's true of the MSNBC model, too. I mean, I, interesting just saying just this sweet piece in the Atlantic about Chris Lick. And they quoted him talking about that CNN had writing too much what he called, I think, rage porn about Trump. I think that's a very fair character. I like CNN. I'm a fan of CNN. But a lot of what they do is rage porn and it is addictive. You turn it on at night and you want to get pissed off about Trump. I mean, I think that was true going back. I think John Stewart, going back to his days on The Daily Show, yeah, I mean, he did rage point. He would go on for 20 minutes about whatever dumb thing Fox had done. I mean, I think clearly a lot of right-wing politics is inflected by rage and grievance, and certainly Trump is a big part of that. Is a big cause. Going back to your question about how did we get here, I mean, Trump is obviously a big part of that, but Trump didn't invent it. I think Trump took advantage of it. I think in the piece I refer to him as an accelerant, which I think is kind of right. And I think he certainly exacerbated things. But yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, I don't want to totally hang issues about Rage and anger and politics and culture is totally a right wing phenomenon because it's certainly present on the left, too.
0: Bruce, what's our way out of this? Is there I mean, do you see any sort of reason for optimism? I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I think of the piece I
2: talk about, like we're not even halfway through yet, 2023. So is it too early to be calling this the raging? 20s. I mean, in a way, I sort of hope so, but it's not like 2024 is shaping up to be this sort of very sober election that's fought on kind of interesting issues of policy and high-minded debate. I mean, that's not going to happen. I know the culture wars aren't going to calm down anytime soon. So I think you have to ask a better writer than me for like a way out of it. Yeah. Going back to the fever metaphor, I think we're at 103 we're going to 104. I don't know how to get the fever to break. Advil or the political or social equivalent of Advil is just not helping right now. It would be wrong, I think, to suggest that rage is some totally new phenomenon that didn't exist until Donald Trump came along. And yeah, I think it ebbs and flows. I think hopefully at some point we will sort of get out of this. Politics is has always been fought and there's always been dirty politics and there's always been anger. I mean, I'm old enough. I grew up with like Johnson and Watergate and then those were not pleasant times or good times. And there was still a fair amount of, I think, a certain amount of respect for other sides and other opinions. And hopefully we will sort of get back to that. But I guess I still have enough hope. And it sounds like you guys do too, that eventually we will. I don't know. What do you guys think?
0: Well, I didn't really realize how it affected me on a daily basis, like viscerally, because you speak so much in your piece about these kind of big events the mass shootings and the things like that that others experience. But I think there is sort of an undercurrent to American life that is full of discord and you don't necessarily realize it until you leave. I moved to London in August and life here is just so civilized and people are so pleasant and you just don't encounter hatred on every corner, which I really started to feel like you felt that in New York after Trump was elected, even though New York is still the best city in the world officially. It does feel like a unique American phenomenon, and it's really greeting, and I think when people ask what I like about living here, I say it's a relief from that feeling.
2: Well, to me, it was, yeah, what's so interesting is you see that, like, I remember going to my son, not me, my son is a Jets fan, so every year we go to a Jets game, and I remember, yes, yeah, so I think it was not last year, it was the year before, so 2021, we went to, oh, it was Buffalo, and there was all these like Trump fans in the middle of the game, they were, people were chanting, F- Joe Biden, like why, why was that being chanted at a football game? Why is that considered acceptable Discourse.
0: Okay, Bruce. We need to end this on a cheerful note, guys. Can we come up with anything?
2: Well, as you mentioned, I'm in Paris, and *Air Mail*, of course, is the leading publication for the international traveler. And I was very happy because Shakespeare and Company, the English language bookstore, which is one of my favorite stores and places in the whole world, they just had their first outdoor. Outdoor readings are a big part of their life in the spring, summer, and early fall. You might remember there's a scene of an outdoor reading there with the Ethan Hawke character and the second of the before, before sunrise, after sunset, whatever movies. But tonight they had their very first outdoor reading since the pandemic. They're finally back able to do it. The French laws are finally allowing them to do it. They had Hernan Diaz, who they had booked a while ago, but who happily just won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of weeks ago. So that was very happy. And they have a full schedule of events going on this summer. So any listeners of this podcast who are in Paris, anytime in the next six months, should I tail it over to Shakespeare and Company? So glad to be here.
1: Thanks, guys.
0: If there's one thing I can say, like it's that talking to Bruce does not make me angry. In fact, I feel more relaxed than ever. You
1: no, know, very soothing. I mean, in a week, it felt like, especially with the scar, like everyone truly was going to burn it all down or was burning it all down. Bruce comes on talks about the decade of rage the raging 20s and manages to make us feel calm about it so i like that
0: bless that man where shall we go next
1: well i think we should continue on crazy rageful behavior and i would like to go to utah and bring john glad in
0: oh god more murders more killings what's the story there
1: more spectacular crime it's a jaw-dropping story Of a Utah mother of three who killed her husband and she was on TV talking about a book she'd written about bereavement for her three kids when all of a sudden things got very complicated for her. John Glatt, who is a true crime writer and the author of several books, most recently Golden Boy, A Murder Among the Manhattan Elite, is here. He's got a new book coming out soon called Tangled Vines. He's here to talk about a woman named Corey Richens and how she has pulled off something very strange and deadly. Welcome, John.
0: So, John, tell us about Corey Richens. Who is she? Well, Corey Richens
3: is a little bit of a mystery. I mean, until this all happened, she was. 32, when she went on TV to promote the book that she'd written, which was to help her children cope with the unexpected death of her husband, Eric. That was when she first came to everybody's attention. And then obviously after she was arrested, she became big, big news. But in all my research, I really can't find anything much about her background, except that she used to work for Home Depot in Park City, which is where she first met Eric Richens, who used to come in and shop there. And it went from there.
1: Let's get to the motive. We don't know much about her, but she goes on this show. And at the end of it, she's talking about, oh, I've got this great book on how to help kids. And then they get a shocking email at the studio saying, you do know she killed her husband. But what's the motive behind this murder?
3: Well, the motive is financial, totally. I mean, she got herself in two million dollars worth of debt and she was trying to get out of it. And I mean, I think it's totally financial that she wanted to murder her husband. So she could, in thought she would get his complete estate, which he signed a prenuptial agreement with when they got married. Unfortunately for her, she didn't realize that after he started suspecting that she was trying to poison him a couple of years earlier, he'd actually changed the agreement and set up a living trust, giving his sister Katie full beneficiary rights So actually, she clearly didn't get anything. And she got into
1: these financial shenanigans because she was trying to become a real estate person, very competitive Park City, Utah market, right?
3: Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the most competitive ones. She was flipping over properties as fast as possible. And I guess she really wasn't very good at what she did because she ended up borrowing about $2 million to keep herself afloat.
1: At the same time, then, she also took out these big life insurance policies on her husband without his knowledge, right?
3: Oh, Exactly. She took out four at one time. He had no idea of this at all. And then finally, he did realize that she'd kind of got a home equity loan on the, their property in Kamas and got other stuff that another $400,000, I think, of what he had. And eventually he found out and confronted her and she admitted it and promised to pay it back. But as of his death, I don't think a cent of it had been paid back whatsoever.
0: John, this notion of someone killing someone for the proceeds of a life insurance policy are nothing new, but what do you think makes this case especially sinister?
3: Well, I think the fentanyl. I mean, poisoning your spouse with fentanyl on many occasions is very, very unusual. I mean, it started off, I think, three years before he died. They were on a trip to Greece and they were having a meal and she gave him a drink and he suddenly became very, very sick and we're very sketchy with the details because these are in the arrest warrant. But we do know that he called his sister at the time to complain that he thought his wife was poisoning him. And I mean, to be honest, if you thought your spouse was poisoning, why stay in the marriage And I think that is the big mystery as to why he stayed in it so long. Although I understand he told friends that he only did it for the sake of his three sons because he didn't want them to be motherless.
0: What do we know about their relationship and their family life? Well, they posted on Facebook.
3: Unfortunately, the social media postings have all been taken down, but they traveled a lot. They went to the beach. They post photographs and things like that. But I don't really know very much about their actual family life. I mean, Eric told people that he was in love with Curry and stuck with her. But it surprised me that he would remain in the marriage after what he suspected.
1: Yeah, that's what's so shocking. I mean, as you
3: detail in your
1: reporting, I mean, she's buying this fentanyl like multiple times from dealers in Utah, right? And like, I need stronger stuff. And yet, just raising my hand, if I'd been poisoned once, I think I would have fled. But she keeps coming back and increasing the potency of this thing, right?
3: Exactly. And I mean, the second time, I think it was on some Valentine's Day, two days after she scored this fentanyl. And Eric, she gave Eric a sandwich. I think she left a love note in his truck on Valentine's Day. He took one bite. He became, he had a severe reaction, broke out in hives, and had to resort to taking Benadryl and grabbing his son's EpiPen to bring him round. And in fact, he, I think he collapsed for a couple of hours. But even then, he remained in the marriage. And then Khoury went back to her drug dealer and complained that it wasn't strong enough and said, I mean, in the affidavit, the drug dealers quoted as saying she wanted some of the stronger Michael Jackson stuff. That's what she was looking for, which the drug dealer promptly delivered. And that's what she fed Eric, which killed
0: John, how does religion play into this? I mean, we know that they were Mormon, but do you think that that could have factored into his decision making in terms of why he stayed in the marriage?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was religious. He did a couple of missionaries. When he was younger, Mormon missionaries, and I think he was a family man, and he believed in the religion and staying in the marriage. I mean, in fact, funny enough, I've just finished a book about Laurie Vallow, you might know who was a Mormon and who killed her children. She just got convicted of that. So, I mean, I was immersed in the Mormon part for that book. It's called The Doomsday Mother, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. So, I mean, I know that religion does play an important part in people's lives.
0: So where does this find Corey now and what's happening with the children? Well, I mean, Corey's in
3: Summit Jail now in Park City, awaiting the next detention hearing, which I think is on June the 12th. I understand that I'm sure that the system are going to be looking to get custody of the kid and wrestle them away from Corey. But we're a little in the dark as to when that's going to happen. How did she get caught? It seemed like she was close to getting away with it. How was she caught? Well, I think the family were very, very suspicious. I mean, Eric had told his sisters and friends that he thought his wife was trying to poison him. And I'm sure the sisters were working with the investigators. It took over a year before she was arrested. So I think they were building a case up for her to kill the husband, her husband. So it was a long term. And then I wonder, obviously, somebody from the family must have called that TV station after seeing the interview and tipped them off that she'd killed her husband. And maybe that moved things even forward because she was blatantly promoting this book she'd written.
0: I guess everyone does want to be an influencer after all. What a strange, twisted story, John. So are you going to be following this from here on out? What's your path?
3: Yes, I certainly will be following it. I'm looking in terms of a book and I put the idea up to my publisher. So I'm waiting to hear. But I think there's So much more that's going to come out in the next few months with various hearings and whatever. Frustratingly, I mean, there is a gag order at the moment preventing a lot of people close to the case actually talking about it. So I think during the hearings, if there's a preliminary hearing, things will happen to come out.
1: It's an incredible story, John. 20 years ago, I would have cast Nicole Kidman in the role, but I'm sure we can think of other people. It just is one of those true crime Just when you think things can't get weirder, like, I'm just going to go on TV and talk about a book about how to help your kids through the loss of their father after I've killed them. So incredible.
3: Right. I mean, it's quite amazing. And she really had a lot of chutzpah to do that. And I think that probably sealed her fate as to getting arrested when she did.
0: Well, it's a great story. We love the way you tell it. And I have a feeling this is not the last we're going to be hearing from you on the matter, John. So we'll speak to you again very soon.
3: Sounds good. Well, thank you very
0: much.
1: Yeah, everything is not so calm out there in Utah. Turns out people are crazy everywhere.
0: Yeah, I was just listening to this episode of The Daily about all these people fleeing New York City and San Francisco and moving to places like that. And it turns out that life is not as tranquil as you might have expected.
1: Your white picket fence neighbors maybe might be a little more twisted. I always say, like, it's crazy, like, you think New York is crazy and then the twisted people really are out there somewhere
0: else. Speaking of strange behavior, we're going to talk about some strange bedfellows. Kenneth Anger, the writer best known for Hollywood Babylon and Dr. Alfred Kinsey, who studies on human sexuality, you all know and love. Legs McNeil, a writer for Airmail and the co-author of Please Kill Me, the uncensored oral history of punk and the other Hollywood, the uncensored oral history of the porn film industry is here to explain what these two had in common. Welcome, Legs. Welcome, Legs. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Some of us find our friends in unusual places, but tell us about how one of the famous sex researchers in the world, Dr. Alfred Kinsey, met the writer and filmmaker Kenneth Anger.
4: Well, Kenneth Anger had done in 1947 a film called Fireworks, where he actually is in it and he wakes up in a kind of a dream state and goes and has this encounter with these sailors and he thinks they're friendly and I think they kind of have an S&M kind of where they hold him down and do things to him. So he had a premiere at the Cornet Theater in Los Angeles in 1947. And the two people who came were James Whale, I believe his first name is James, who directed Frankenstein. And the other one who came was Dr. Alfred Kinsey, who was so impressed with the film that he asked Kenneth Anger for a copy of the print. He bought a copy of the print of Fireworks. After that, he asked... Kenneth Anger. He was doing his book on male sexuality, which became a top 10, top number one bestseller. And he asked Kenneth Anger if he could be interviewed for the the research. And Kenneth Anger said it took about eight hours.
1: And as you... Detail in your reporting, anger sort of became this guide for him through certain sexual I shouldn't say subcultures, but certain sexual cultures, even taking him to Italy on a trip as well, right?
4: It's kind of amazing when you think of how weird Kenneth Anger was and how straight Dr. Kinsey was, although Dr. Kinsey proved later to be bisexual. But he was very, he was a very serious scientist. Kenneth Anger said he was never inappropriate. Kenneth took him to see bordellos and pickup joints and the docks of Naples and all these kind of pickup spots in Italy in Rome and Naples. And I said he never joined in or anything. He was always just observing and talking to people. But he said well, the great thing about Kinsey was that he was so gracious to talk to people and uh, people really responded to his personality and would open up to him. it was just
1: fantastic to watch. Yeah, it feels like a short film, which is the sex tour of post-war Italy with anger and Dr. Kinsey. (laughs) As you know, like everyone, like nuns and priests would open up to him. Everyone punks to presidents. But I think it certainly seems a testament to Kinsey's professionalism that he got people to trust him so much with this. And yet to have this guide in anger was quite a coup as well.
4: Yeah, He even then in 19... 55, he took Kinsey to Sicily, to this village outside of Palermo, where Alist- they had a shared interest in Aleister Crowley. And Crowley had set up the Abbey of Thelema. Alistair Crowley was called the wickedest man in the world by the English tabloid press. And he was an occultist. And he, I think he was a kind of a charlatan. But other people think that he could do magic. And he practiced sex magic which was just another way of getting into someone's pants. A lot of people took it seriously, including Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin and apparently the Rolling Stones. And Kenneth takes credit for influencing them to do Sympathy for the Devil. But he also says that Keith Richards and Anita Pallenberg, he lent them first editions of Crowley's books and they throw him out the window of the limousine because they thought they were cursed and they thought the cops were following him. But he says, that's what drugs do to you. They make you incredibly paranoid. What's fascinating is everyone knows about anger and the Rolling Stones and anger and Led Zeppelin, but no one knows about anger and Alfred Kinsey, which I thought is a fascinating kind of little footnote to history. That Kenneth Anger not only influenced because Kinsey was known as the father of the sexual revolution and Kenneth Anger was taken so seriously that it influenced the book on male human sexuality that became a best-selling book in the 50s. I just thought it was
1: great. No, it's great. It's a great story and encourage everyone to read it in this week's issue. Legs.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so me.
1: much. Carry on. Oh,
4: okay.
0: Thanks, Legs. Have a good right. day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Michael, now that we have basically covered sex, drugs, and if not rock and roll, at least murder, I think that before we talk about the things that we recommend, we first have to talk about the elephant in the room, Michael, which is the idol.
1: Have you seen it? Of
0: course I've seen it. This is for once I have a good answer to that question. Of course I've seen it. This is the new show on Max, as it's called, formerly known as HBO, Rest in Peace. It stars Lily Rose Depp in the weekend. Lily Rose plays a pop idol, The weekend plays her love interest, club owner, among other things. What did you think?
1: I'm too scared to watch it.
0: Are you kidding me? Oh my God, I thought you were going to have a view on this and we could really go at it. I loved it. The reviews are not great, but I thought it was fantastic. I couldn't, I was watching every frame.
1: How does it compare to Euphoria in terms of shock value? Everyone seems to be very shocked by Lily Rose depth behavior in this.
0: I was not. I mean, anyone, no offense, but like anyone who subscribed to us weekly during the Britney Spears era, this is not going to be the most unfamiliar possible subject. Matter. I mean, it all feels like something we've seen before played out in real life. In fact, again, I've only seen the first episode because that's all that's on right now. I think she's a real talent. I mean, she plays this character with so much panache and sensitivity. The weekend, I'm a little bit less convinced by him, but we haven't seen much of him so far. But I think the writing's great. The cinematography is very compelling, very quote unquote cinematic. But I loved this show. And I didn't actually, I've read none of the reviews because I've been hearing from everybody about how bad the reviews are, but I gave it a chance. and I have to say I loved it. So anyway, if you hate it next week, we'll discuss and we'll go into it in more detail. All
1: right. Tune in next week.
0: It feels like a very odd show. It's like a bunch of cool Hollywood types driving around in Bentley convertibles and going to clubs and doing shots and hanging out in large empty houses. I mean... That's not the world that exists anymore in terms of Hollywood celebrity, is it? I mean, those days of going to the Viper room and all of that, like it's a very odd for 2022 show. Cause I feel like today, pop stars are always talking about their weird wellness rituals and their intermittent fasting and their bone broth diets and like all of this stuff. And this is just good old fashioned sex, drugs, and pop music. Very into it. Well, I'd
1: rather see Entourage reboot of that than if we're talking about like LA kids hanging out and driving around. Entourage. I'll go back there. Good for a 20 year reboot pretty soon. So just put that to David's
0: ass. Very into it. Good idea. All right, Michael, what do you have to recommend to us?
1: Well, not as scandalous, but I have a cultural twofer here in New York City. And I thought of you because first, if you haven't seen Lagerfeld, the big show at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum, I'd say run, don't walk, Ashley, next time you're here. Because Brooke and I were lucky enough to get a private tour of the show from Andrew Bolton, the curator of the Institute. I have to say it's breathtaking, In its beauty, as well as what I think it reveals about Dirk Kaiser's creative mind, and Andrew told us that he called the show for more than ten thousand pieces, and you just have to see it. Every item here just leaves your jaw on the floor, and to see the pieces up close, as you rarely get to do, it's a real rarity. So, encourage everyone to see it before it closes, and then I would say head downtown to Gagosian Gallery in Chelsea to see the exhibit that's dedicated to Richard Avedon's centenary. It's a brilliant show with one hundred works selected by. 100 people so i'd say see both before they close next month and as a reminder as you travel this summer and you're looking to know all the cultural myths seas in cities around the world be sure ashley as you know to use airmail's wonderful arts intel report it's your curated search engine for finding the best of what's coming up at the world's greatest museums and theater think of it as your indispensable resource for planning your cultural conquest you can access it at airmail.news backslash So Ashley, when you go to see those, I will go with you because I would love to see them with you and through your eyes.
0: Yeah, that would be a blast. Note to self, got to get that done. Then you have to come to London and see the Mondrian Hilma F. Klimt exhibit at the Tate.
1: Done. I will get out of these smoky skies and get over there.
0: All right, well, I've got to go because the Idol's coming on in 24 hours and I need to get ready to watch it. But Michael, thank you for a lovely podcast. Wishing you all a wonderful weekend. Will you please read us out?
1: (music) Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julia Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.